Okay, if you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis 1. I'm going to read this morning um, uh, Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, and then I'm going to skip over to chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Now, I know that we're skipping over some of Genesis 2, but we'll get back to it and look at some really fun stuff at the beginning of Genesis 2. But I want to stay on this, kind of this vein that we've been going down on the Imago Dei, the image of God. And um, and so let me read this, and then let me pray. Genesis 1, verse 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Chapter 2, verse 18. And then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the the purpose and the practicality and the reality of your word. I pray today that you would give us faith to hear, that you would give us ears to hear, and eyes to see what it is that the Holy Spirit want to be speaking to this church specifically this morning. I pray that um, this teaching wouldn't be taken um, as maybe this week someone just has reopened a deep wound that they have, and like we're jamming salt into it. That's not the intention here. I pray, God, that this would be a healing balm for open wounds that have to deal with relationships that have to do with our identity, having to do with seeing. I pray that we would get our identity and our sense of self from what you say about us and what you say is true about us. Not necessarily what we see in the mirror and not necessarily what we see when we look inward, but what you say about us. May that change false ideas, false thoughts, false worldviews. May you reshape us and reform us and you would form us around the truth of your word, the gospel of Jesus. Pray that you would help me. I need your help this morning desperately to communicate these truths. We ask together that you would anoint me in my mind, my mouth, God. We don't want to hear from a man. We want to hear from God. So would you speak to us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we've been going through the book of Genesis, and what we came to last week and saw was how the Bible begins to answer this question. The Bible begins to answer the question at the latter half of chapter 1, the question, what is it to be human? And that's what we looked at last week. What is it to be human? 
And we said that the way Genesis answers this question, the way that Genesis begins to answer the question, what is it that we're human? It says this, that first we're made, that we are created in the image of God. So being human means this, that you were made, that you were created in the image of God. That's why um, Jason, right after worship, said, I I want you guys to look each other in the eye when you greet one another. We can't just go, hey, how you doing? What's up? My name is Dave. How you doing? Like, look them in the eye and, and and remember this and think about this, that that person that you're greeting, that you're meeting is made in the image of God. I think we have to get that even as we're at church because when we walk outside of this building, as we pass people on the street, you have a tendency maybe to look down on somebody, to go, oh my gosh, you're totally living in a way, I I can't even look at you in the eye. Or you might see someone and and you just don't want to look anybody in the eye. That's kind of the rule that somebody told me when we first moved to San Francisco. Don't look anybody in the eye. When you do, they'll ask something from you. So as soon as you make eye contact, they'll go, can I have a... Can I borrow it? So we, we just kind of train ourselves here never to look anybody in the eye. But I want you to start to do that. And I want you to start to think of this. No matter who you're looking at in the eye, they are made. They are created in the image of God. Has that image been distorted? Of course it has. But so has the image of God in you. And so what we began to learn and, and kind of get our, our, our minds around was this issue of identity. That was last week. Last week we saw how being made in the image of God gives us an identity. And so what I want to do in the next several weeks is tease out what is it, what are the, the, the huge, the vital implications of being made in the image of God, the Imago Dei? What does it mean? And today what I want to look at, especially as we moved into chapter 2, is how being made in the image of God means that we are created for relationship. That we are created for relationship. You see how at the very beginning I, when I prayed, I, I, I prayed that that you wouldn't think that if you had some sort of relational wound open this, this week that I'm going to shove salt in it? Because I know that happens all the time. I mean, the most, most of the prayer requests that we get um, up, up front and, and the counseling that, we, um, that people call in for are, is, is relationship. This is where we're most broken. And so what I don't want to do today, I don't want to rub salt in the wound. I pray that the, the Word of God today, that, that, that the, the, the Holy Scriptures would be like a, a healing balm to that wound. And what we see in our text is how relationships and community are not secondary or optional. That's what I want you to know. I know that we all have the sense that, that they're not, but I want to show you clearly from God's word how community and relationships are not secondary but primary and they're essential to what it means to be human. Relationships are central to what it means to be human, what it means to be made in the image of God. And the first thing I think that we see here is the place that Genesis 1 and 2 gives to relationship. We see that at at the very beginning, the place that that Genesis 1 and 2 gives to relationship. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. Maybe you've thought this yourself. Maybe you've said this, maybe in a moment of um, spiritual euphoria, or, or maybe in a moment of like, I hate everybody in the world. But you you've maybe have said or heard someone say, all I need is God. That's it. I don't need anyone else. I will not be dependent on anyone else. I am, I'm going to be complete. All I need is God. Just me and God. That's it. That's all that matters. Just my relationship with God. That's it. Now, that sounds really good. And it sounds very holy. And it might come from a great desire in our hearts to know God and to follow God. And it is true as it pertains to our redemption. But it is not true as it pertains to our humanity. That is not true. That statement, hey, listen, all all I need, man, all I need is God. 
As it pertains to our humanity, that's actually a false statement. Genesis 2.18. How else do you explain this verse? This should, like, jump off the page and, like, slap you. This is pretty strange here. Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I want you to stop and think about that for a second. Okay, so God's saying here, it's not good. Stop and think about the, the, that verse. It's fascinating. Think about the context that's surrounding that verse, okay? So the context surrounding this verse, when God looks at Adam and goes, it's not good that you're alone. The context that's around this verse is this. Adam is in the garden with God. Perfect garden. It's just Adam and God in perfect fellowship, in perfect relationship, in perfect paradise. The weather was perfect. The food was perfect. Adam's body, his mind, his heart were perfect. Sin had not entered in yet. He had a perfect body, a perfect mind, a perfect heart, a perfect soul, perfect environment, a perfect relationship with God. And then look at verse 18. So that's the context. So this verse should shock you a little bit. If you understand the context, like it's not good. We kind of read over that like, yes, it wasn't good. People that want to be married are like, yeah, it's definitely not good. I really want to be married. That's 218. But if you read the context of that verse, but what if I said this? Like, okay, okay, you're not going to be married, but you're going to have a perfect relationship with God and with a perfect body, a perfect mind, a perfect heart, a perfect soul, perfect food, a perfect environment. And you're like, well, that, that, isn't that heaven? And then God says something's not good there. Well, what's not good? It says this, verse 18, look at, it says, then the Lord God said. Okay, that sentence right there, that phrase, then the Lord God said, brings echoes of Genesis 1 right back, doesn't it? Doesn't that bring echoes of Genesis 1? Remember Genesis 1, the, the whole rhythm of Genesis 1 goes, and then God said, and it was, and God said, and it was, and then God said, and it was, and then it was what? At the end of every single day, what, what, what was it? It was good. It was good, 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 good. And then the last day, it was very good. Or when God created humanity, it was very good. It was good. Everything was good. What does that mean? What does it mean? What is good? Um, I was reading a book on graphic design for fashion. Don't judge me. But the book looked cool and interesting, so I picked it up and I started reading it. And right at the beginning... They asked all these fashion designers and their graphic departments this exact question. So they were all creative, all people who create. And they asked them this question. This is what, how the book opens up. How do you know when something's good? That depends on what you want to achieve. This is how they responded to this. I think it's the toughest thing of being creative. To see when something is good. To see when it is finished. But the very moment you reach this point, you feel it. It's, it's, the, it's the moment when everything, every ingredient of your creation is in tune. It feels like enlightening, a beautiful, tender moment, an extreme satisfaction. This may have been what it was like for God. God being the ultimate creative, the creative, the creative one, the ultimate creator and when he saw that it was good, he enjoyed his creation. He rejoiced in it. In Proverbs 8, which is this personifying of the wisdom of God in creation, it says that God was rejoicing over the inhabited world, that God was delighting in it. You see, it was in tune. It was beautiful. It was full of function and purpose. It was harmonious. It was shalom. It was peaceful. Everything was in perfect harmony. It was good. But then you get to chapter 2. 
where the narrative moves into focus with, with attention on, on, the, on the principle or the pinnacle of his, his creation, uh, humanity, human, human life. And then in verse 18, God said, it is not good. Something was not good. It's not good that man should be alone. Now, you would answer, maybe Adam would even answer when God said, it's not good that you're alone. Adam would probably answer, and you would probably read into this text and going, wait, Adam's like, uh, God, I have you. I mean, I have you, right? It's not good that you're alone. You're like, I have God. I mean, that's a super good answer. That's like Sunday school answer, right? You would, all, all of you would answer that in Sunday school. Yeah, I have God. I don't need anyone else. I have God. And that might have been Adam's answer. God, I have you. Or that's maybe what we think. That's all you need. I had God. But that wasn't enough for God. Why wasn't it enough for God? Well, you might be thinking, well, isn't, Pastor, isn't this like about marriage and sex and nakedness and like procreation? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Okay. That's next week. Okay, we talk about marriage next week. But what, what I think that this is primarily teaching, what I think is primarily going on is relationship. And this is why I say that. Who was created in the perfect image of God? Reflecting God perfectly. Who was the true and greater Adam? It was Jesus. And Jesus was single. He was not married. The Bible looks favorably on singleness. 1 Corinthians 7 makes that clear. But what the Bible knows not of, what the Bible knows nothing of, is solitary faith. Going at it alone. Living life in isolation. So why was it not good that man should be alone? And, and I want you to first, the first way I want you to think through this, Genesis 2, is in the context of relationship. We'll, we will get to marriage next week. But I want you to first think of this, relationship. Why is it not good that I'm isolated from other people? And I would even say other Christians. Why is it not good that I'm isolated? Here's why. Because God made man in his image. You were created in his image, in his likeness. Adam was made in the image of a community, an eternally existent relationship. Remember we said last week when we read Genesis 126, we said that this was one of the most interesting parts of the entire creation narrative. When we got to this part, we're like, this is very interesting here. When Genesis speaks of God creating, he, he speaks of God creating like, um, everything, the dry ground, the, the, the seas, the light, the, the weather, the moon, the stars, everything. And everything he created, he gave it purpose and he gave it function and he caused it to work and it was beautiful. He brought order out of chaos. And when it said that he created, he says that he created, that God created. But we said last week, when it comes to the creation of humanity, the pronoun changes and it looks something like this. Then God said, let us make man in our image in our likeness. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man, singular, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular, male and female, he created them. This is not like me, I created, but an us. Now, is this the Trinity? Is this what's going on here? The, the, the Trinity is being brought out in the very beginning. Yes, I think the Christian teaching of the Trinity is alive and vibrant in the opening pages of the Bible. The Trinity has been called the grammar of the Christian faith. The grammar of the Christian faith. 
And as the Christian grammar, this Trinitarian language enables us to speak rightly about the God who is revealed in Scripture as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I think that this is true here. I do believe that there is Trinitarian language going on here in Genesis chapter 1. But here's the main point of it. Here's the main point. This is why I don't want you to to lose this. I want you to get the point of this. It's only when God created humanity that his plurality came out. I mean, it was there implicitly from verse 2, Genesis 1-2. It was there implicitly. But with the creation of humanity, it's brought out explicitly. One commentator says this. Verse 27 stated twice that humankind was created in God's image and a third time that humankind was created male and female. Listen to this. The singular human being is created as a plurality, male and female. In a similar way, the one God created humanity through an expression of his plurality. Following this clue, one may see the divine plurality expressed in verse 26. Let us make mankind as an anticipation of the human plurality of man and woman, thus casting the human relationship between man and woman as the, in the role of reflecting God's own personal relationship with himself. Okay, what he's saying there, if you're like, what did you just say? What Selhammer is saying there is that since God created us in his image, don't, okay, don't lose this, since God created us in his image according to his likeness, we weren't just created by God, we were created like God. And since God is a community, a triunity, and we were created like him to reflect him, we are therefore created for relationships. Does that make sense? You were created in the image of God. What is the image of God? A community. How were you created? To be in communal relationships. That's how you were created. That is your humanity. And to deny that is to deny your humanness. Now, you may have heard it said that what it means to be created in the image of the triune God and to reflect that is found in the fact that you have a body, a soul, and a mind. You might have heard that. Like, well, you're created in the image of God. You know why? Because you have body, soul, and mind. And, the, the, and, and God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's why you were created that way. Now, that's a very Western way of looking at ourselves. See how, like, see how introverted that is? See how selfish that is? Where we believe that our identity comes from within, our authentic self comes from our inner self, and we can exist apart. I mean, relationships are good, but I don't need them to be human. I'm human because I have, I am. I think therefore I am. That's, what, that's where that comes from. But this is foreign to the scriptures. It's not true. In the mid-90s, if you remember the mid-90s, a man named Larry Crabb uh, challenged the field of Christian psychotherapy. And he was a psychotherapist himself. He was a professor. He was actually a director of, uh, of a whole counseling institute. And he said that the Christian counseling industry should be dismantled. In 1997, he wrote a book called Connecting, in which he offered this prescription for healing soul wounds. This is what he said. We must do something other than train professional experts to fix damaged psyches. Damaged psyches are not the problem. The problem beneath beneath our struggles is a disconnected soul. And we must do something more than exhort people to do what's right and then hold them accountable. Groups tend to emphasize accountability when they don't know how to relate. Better behavior through exhortation isn't the solution, though it's sometimes a part of it. Rather than fixing psyches or scolding sinners, we must provide nourishment 
for the disconnected soul that only a community of connected people can offer. See, what brought Crabbe to this realization was a profound awareness that human beings, you and I, are created in the image of the triune God. Therefore, we are created for relationship. Do you, do you see how the reason behind this radical statement of God saying it's not good? It's almost scandalous when you read it. It's not good that man's alone. When you think of the context, you think of God saying that in a perfect relationship between him and Adam. When Adam had a perfect body and a perfect environment and a perfect mind, it wasn't good enough. It's not good that man is alone. Why? Because man is incomplete. Man is not rightly reflecting God alone. The human person is not an isolated being. You are not an island. You are not an isolated being, complete in yourself. We are created beings, and the way that God made us and the way that God created us is to need fellowship and others, and we're not complete apart from them. You were created in the image of God, thus you were created to need with the capacity and with the privilege of being in relationships with others. Did you ever realize that God, I mean, I don't really want to like, it's early, okay? I know all this Trinitarian talk is probably like, dude, the coffee was way too weak here this morning to be talking about the Trinity. But I I don't want to trip you out even more, but I want you to think about this. Do you ever realize that God is who he is only as he relates inside the Trinity? Let me give you a quote, one of my favorite books of all time. I've quoted it many times. Stephen Seidman says this, the very names of the three persons imply existence and relationship. The father is identified as the father only by virtue of his relationship with the son and vice versa. The spirit is a spirit by virtue of his interaction with the, with the other two. To think of the Trinitarian persons then is to think of relations. The father, the son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons by virtue of their relationships with one another. Think about that. The Father is the Father because of the Son. The Son is the Son because of the Father. The Spirit is the Spirit because of the relationship that He has with the Father and the Son. Okay, now stop thinking about it because I don't want to like, like, I don't want you to like have a headache or hurt yourself or something. One more quote. I know I'm using a, a lot because I know that there are people who have said it way better than I can. We'll be giving you these quotes. You don't have to write them down. We'll, we'll put them on our website this week. But one more. Colin Gutton says this. To be a person is to be made in the image of God. That is the heart of the matter. If God is a communion of persons inseparably related, then it is in our relatedness to others that our being human consists. You are you as you relate to others. That's how God made you. God made us in a way that to know who we are, we will need other people. To become who God wants us to be, we will need other people. And not just that. In order to fully know God and enjoy God, we need community. I mean, if, if, if the Westminster Shorter Catechism is correct, and like the first question asks, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Genesis 2 says that you can't achieve that apart from relationships. You can't glorify God, and enjoy God forever apart from relationships. You need relationships. And look at what God does to cure Adam's loneliness. 
Adam's alone, and God says, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And that helper was Eve. Now, let me deal with this word helper before girls get all mad in here. <laughs> girls are like, oh, no, he didn't. He did not go there. This is what helper means, okay? The word helper, Hebrew is azer, or z- I, don't, I don't know how to speak Hebrew, but it's there. I'll just give you the word. Maybe come up afterwards, you can ask me. The word in Hebrew is used almost exclusively for God. God as our helper. He is the one who helps his people. So every time that word helper is used, you're going, oh, it's so derogatory. Every time that word is used, is God helping people. When it's rarely used in the Old Testament, rarely, actually, if you get to the New Testament, the Holy Spirit, their parakletos, is called the helper, right? But in the Old Testament, every time this word's used, it's used almost exclusively of God as our helper. Now, when it's used rarely of others helping others, nothing suggests subservient status of the one helping, like a slave helping its master, nothing. In fact, and by fact I mean fun fact, the opposite is actually more likely in this usage, but more on that next week. This is what all this means. Adam, when Adam needs a helper, a companion, God creates for him someone equal in dignity and worth, but opposite and complementary in personhood. God doesn't bring Adam someone just like him. That's huge. You can't just interpret this as it applies to marriage, though. That is part of it. But again, Jesus himself, the ideal man, was never married. And the life to come, when humanity will be totally perfected, there will be no marriage. So here's the point. Married or not, you need a helper. You need helpers. You need people who can see something that you don't see and then call you out on it, help you out on it, see a different perspective on it. You need people to help you who are different than you, who don't think like you, who are in different places in their walk with God than you, who are even different in age. If you are older in this church, and by older this, by in this church, that means if you're over 35. If you're over 35, don't leave. Everyone else needs you. And they might not know it, they do. And you need them. We need each other. One way, obviously one way that we try to accomplish this is through community groups. But that's not the only way. But we believe it's a vital way. Are you, are you with a group of Christian people who are, are in each other's lives and when someone says something that you don't agree with, you're like, you know what? I can't go, I can't, I can't be a part of this anymore. I'm out. I'm leaving. Are, are you in something like that? Where, where they won't even let you leave. You're like, that's fine. We're not going to let you leave, though. Like, what do you mean you're not going to let me leave? Like, you can't just leave when it gets hard. You can't just leave when your life gets hard. We need each other. You need a helper. Now, some practical implications of this. Some, th- a couple practical things. The first thing is this. that I want you to realize that you belong. I want you to hear that. Especially if you're in here going, I don't belong here. You belong. You may think, or you might even have this cultural notion that you can believe without belonging, that your faith is just a private matter. That's a very foreign concept in the Bible. When you believed in Christ, whether you realized it or not, you, were, you brought, are brought into fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Actually, you were brought into fellowship by the work and the mission of the Son being sent by the Father and the convincing and the convicting of the Holy Spirit. 
And you were brought into that. That's what baptism is all about. It's this mysterious picture, this glorious picture of this identification, this unity. But as Tarek said during the announcements, not only is baptism an identification with who God is, it's actually also being brought into the fellowship and relationship with every other Christian who is also a part of that triune fellowship. You believe and you belong. People need you and you need others. And you may not feel this way. And you may not even see it. You may not see how you fit in here. But you do. New Testament language says that you're a part of a body. This is a body and we're all part of a body. Now what part are you of the body? Nobody knows. We don't know. But you're a part of this body. I think the most frustrating part of this is that everyone knows this, but we don't know how to get into it. One of the things that we heard when we first started this church was about small groups and community. How can I find community? I want to say something, and I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to overcorrect here. You know how we have a tendency when something's leaning this way, we just want to yank it, yank the string, we want to overcorrect. I don't want to overcorrect, but I kind of want to get us a little bit down the middle, Okay. A lot of you guys, a lot, a lot of people that come up to us say, I need community, I'm trying to find community, I'm in a community, I can't find community at this, at this church, or I can't find community in the city. Let me just start by asking this question. Why are you in this city? Most of you are in this city because of career or school. And let me ask you this question. Why are you going to leave this city in two years? Because of career and school. Community normally, when you really, when I really boil it down, when I really start pressing, I start pressing in your heart, and community is actually really way down here. Like you want it, but you want it at your own convenience. You want it in your own way. Like I want community, but I want it to look like this. Can I have like awesome friends, and we all hang out, and they're all beautiful, and we like post really amazing pictures on Twitter, and I'm like always like, oh my gosh, I'm doing this now with my friend, and this is that, and tagging everybody in the world. Like that's what you want, but then you want to work hard, hard, hard at work, and then when you get a uh, career advance, you're like, hey guys, I'm out, I'm, I'm leaving now, I love you guys, yeah, I'm, 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 bye, and I'm gone. <laughs> That's you, and you know it, and you're going to leave as soon as a career opens up somewhere else. So you don't really care about community as much as you say you do. You want it. I've known, I've known three people, maybe four, I've known, maybe there's more, that since we've been here for the almost two years, have not taken a career advancement because of community. Have actually been like, hey, we want to move you here and pay you this much money. You're going to have a huge advancement in your career. And they've prayed about it and they go, you know what? My community here is too important to me. I can't do it. There's someone in finance, real estate, someone in tech industry, and, and, a, and, and an actor. Like, no, I, my community here is too important to me. Now, again, I don't want to overcorrect because. If I overcorrect, the reason why you got here was career, and you left community somewhere else. That's why you got here. But I want you to at least factor it in. Would, would it, can it be something that you factor in? Can it be like a decision that you're like, okay, one of my, the, the top things, because I'm created to be in relationship, I'm going to factor those into big decisions. When I do, I'm offered a career advancement. I'm going to consider my community that I've given my life to. I'm going to consider my community group or my group of friends or my whatever it is. Will you, will you just at least, don't overcorrect, but not make work such an idol? Not make career such a thing that you're like, it, 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 I don't, it doesn't matter how much I work. 
I'll go wherever, I just want to make a lot of money. I just want to advance in my career. That's why I spent $250,000 on my education. I want you to consider community and relationships. And I don't want you to bail when they get hard. I don't want you to bail when your community group gets to be 35 people and all of a sudden it's not a community group anymore. Like all these new people. Like we had a great thing going when there was like eight of us. Then like 20 started showing up. Don't be selfish either. The second thing I want you to realize is you need biblical community. You just don't need community and relationships. You need biblical community and relationships. You don't just need someone that you can go out and have a drink with and everyone says life is fine. You need people that will actually get in your face and push you towards maturity in Christ. Thirdly, you have to realize that, that relationships are costly. Relationships are costly. That's the reality of it. Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship and lived in perfect, harmonious connection for like a chapter. Then it all went to hell. A chapter. Relationships are costly. You can get hurt. And you know what's crazy? Your relationship with God can actually even be damaged by community. But God doesn't let us out of them. Due to our sin and brokenness, the most difficult part of life will be living in healthy relationships. That is just, it's the most difficult part. Marriage relationships, guys, marriage is so difficult. Friends are, are difficult. Roommates, community groups, your neighbors. And all of this unhealthy and broken, we're all unhealthy and broken in one way or another. And when it comes to relationships especially, See, I mean, you could be like really, really outgoing and friendly and you, and, and you could get to know someone really fast, but then you would easily become codependent and you know who you are. Or you might be that person that's really unneedy, but you're completely detached. You might be easy to get along with, but you don't let anyone in. You might be the most amazing person face-to-face, -face, but horrible at maintaining any connectedness when there's distance. And that distance could be three blocks. Just horrible. You might be so quiet and afraid of relationships that everyone thinks that you're mean and aloof, but you're not. You've just been really hurt in the past. And because of all this dysfunction, we typically operate out of fear and self-protection rather than love. Because of all this brokenness, we operate out of fear and self-protection rather than love, which means we either overemphasize relationships and crush our spouses, our friends, and our community. We go to our community and are like, listen, I need you so bad. Would you please save me? Community group, I've come into you. I, I'm, I'm walking in the community group. Would you, community group, would you save me? I need, your, I, need this, I need salvation. And you, 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 you need to disciple me? You need to care for me? You need to call me? You need to love me? And, and all these things? Like, that's, that's you. You get, like, super clingy. Or... We overemphasize independence and think that we can find security in, with separation from others. Like we keep distance. Because we're messed up, this leads to both dependence on others and then independence from others, which can be idolatry. On one hand, we have been made for companionship and made for relationship, but there are, they are not our saviors. We are not saved by relationships. Another human can't handle the weight of your soul. You can't go into marriage going, when I get married, then I'll be saved. When I get a best friend, that's when my Christianity will. Relationships don't save you. If you think that you're going to crush your spouse, you're going to crush your friends, you're going to crush your community. 
Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can handle the weight of a human soul. But if you're completely independent, and there's probably several of you in here that are completely independent, let me guess, you probably substitute work for relationships. Some sort of work. Some sort of duty. You work really hard, and you feel like you don't need anyone. Can I tell you that you're denying your identity as being made in the image of God? You need others. Now, obviously, if you're listening, you're like, hey, wait, you just said I can't be independent or dependent. There's really, what are the other options? Remember when I just said that due to our dysfunction, we typically operate out of fear and self-protection rather than love? We operate out of fear. I can't get close to anyone. Our self-protection. Our only hope in relationships is to look at Jesus, who was fully man in that he was the perfect image of God and who was fully God in that he's the only one who could redeem us. And when you consider Jesus and look to Jesus and see him not operating out of self-protection, he wasn't operating out of self-protection. He didn't protect himself. He freely gave himself over to the worst kind of human relationships, the worst that any human relationship can throw at Jesus. He handled it all. Betrayal, conspiracy, murder. And he was operating not out of fear. He didn't give in to fear. The fear of being misunderstood, he didn't give in to. The fear of being separated from the only eternal and perfect relationship that ever, ever really mattered. He went into it. Jesus operated and was moved out of love. And the only way that you and I can begin to be fixed, where we can actually live in relationship with someone else, and we don't bail and run and hide, the only way that that happens is by looking to Christ, receiving his love in, receiving the love of Jesus who went to the cross for us and rose from the grave for us and is coming back again for us. It's that beautiful love for us that changes us and begins to transform us and transform our relationship with others. You and I need, I want you to realize this when you leave, you need relationships. But the most, not just the most important, the only way that we can do it is through relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray, God, that for anyone in here who is going through some sort of relational whatever, that first they wouldn't run. They wouldn't run from you. They wouldn't run from the fact that they need relationships. They wouldn't say, fine, that's it. I'm done with people. I'm an island. I'm done with church. I'm done with community groups. I'm done with, I'm done with whatever. I'm done. I pray that you'd keep us from that. Keep them from that. Relationships are costly. God, your relationship with us, your rescue mission to save us was costly. I pray that you would heal people's wounds from relationships by them seeing their love for you, uh, your love for them. I pray that you would spur us on to pursue right relationships as we see you. Do all of these things, Lord. Bring restoration here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.